Coming up on today's episode of Build. Once it works, you disrupt yourself before someone else does. And that comes in a lot of different flavors. For us, it was easy because it was a different product. So we just kind of brought them together and we had to train the core sales team on selling both and should support team and that, that was a process there. Um, for other folks I know like, they like when, when salespeople in certain territories quit, they don't replace them. They just let the PLG take over the territory, right? So like it depends on your business context, but you essentially have to find a way to disrupt yourself. Anyone who knows me knows that I talk about PLG a lot. I'm constantly talking PLG in one-on-one -on -one settings with founders and product leaders and growth leaders. Plus I'm talking PLG for wider audiences on podcasts and live talks. And regardless of the conversation, I always get the same question. Somebody says, I work at an established SaaS company that is not PLG today. How do I transition to PLG? It's a topic that's on virtually every non-PLG software company's collective mind today, and I get asked this question weekly. And guess what? I always have the same answer. I say, yes, it's possible, but it's a long journey. And that's because PLG isn't a go-to-market strategy on its own. And it certainly isn't merely just adding a growth team to your existing equation. Rather, PLG is a whole company strategy that touches everything in your organization, from the product you build, to the customer journey you see, to how you design the org, to how you even think about OKRs and goal setting. So yeah, it's hard and it's slow to make this transition, but it's important because the PLG wave is building and you can't resist it. And when I'm answering this question, I always give the example of HubSpot. HubSpot wrote the playbook on inbound marketing and had a ton of success with a sales and marketing-led go-to-market strategy. But if you go check out the company today, you can sign up for all of the products, all of the hubs on a self-service basis. They've effectively transitioned the entire company at HubSpot to PLG. And guess what? The company didn't blow up. Quite to the contrary, HubSpot is stronger than ever and has become a major rival to established incumbents like Salesforce and many others. But enough about my views and theories. Today's guest is Mark Roberge, who was CRO at HubSpot for nine years. He built both the initial and original go-to-market playbook at HubSpot that was so successful, and then was a part of the Tiger team at HubSpot that disrupted that successful playbook by pioneering PLG at the company and driving this transformation. So today on Build, we hear the full story directly from Mark. How did HubSpot actually transition to PLG? And what are their lessons learned that you can apply to your own efforts to migrate and transition? This episode is a doozy and is a direct response to the most common PLG question I receive. So with that super long intro, let's dive right in with Mark Roberge and hear the HubSpot PLG story directly from the source. So one of the questions that I get most often about PLG is how to transform an existing company from a sales-led motion to a product-led motion, uh, especially if it's an established, somewhat mature company. The question is, is that even possible? How do you do it? Uh, and if it is possible, who's an example of somebody that has done it successfully? And whenever I get that question, I always say, yes, it is possible, but it isn't easy. It's a long process. And the best example I can point to is HubSpot. So would love to hear the story. You know, when was this at HubSpot? What was going on at the company? Why was this an idea? And then how did it start to, to unfold? 
so passionate about it. I think it's so important for the ecosystem these days with PLG. I think PLG is like SaaS in terms of the disruptive potential. I don't, I don't think it's as applicable as SaaS was to the breadth of categories in software, but I think it's applicable to more categories than people think. Yep. I think if it is applicable to your category, it's going to be hard to fend off the PLG attacker, just like it was hard for the on-premise ex- incumbents to fend off the SaaS attackers. And the transition is going to be tough too, just like it was tough for the, the on-premise incumbents to transition to SaaS. You know, it went, it went, they went, kind of went through a phase of like, oh, SaaS isn't going to work. Like no CIO is going to put their stuff in the cloud to, oh gosh, this thing's kind of working to, oh my gosh, we're losing market share really fast. Let's hire McKinsey or BCG and try to figure this thing out. And some did okay and a lot didn't. And I think that's what we're up against here. Yes, HubSpot did do it. We didn't do it because of loss of market share. We did it because it was probably about a year into the business. We're probably about 2007, 2008. Uh, there were probably like 12 of us. You know, a lot of us at the founding team were part out of MIT. And one person a lot of us were tight with was Drew Houston, who went off and started Dropbox um, after MIT. And obviously they were one of the few companies that did this motion. We didn't call it PLG then, we talked it, we called it Freemium. And Darmesh would kind of watch it, talk to Drew and like, was pretty envious, honestly, <laughs> of it. He's like, we have to do this. We have to do this because this is such a, a less friction way to distribute the software, especially in the SMB ecosystem that we're in. We probably had about two or three million in revenue at the time, thousands of customers. And at the time we were probably selling the thing for like two, 300 bucks a month. And we're like, okay, let's roll it out. Free product and $20 a month upgrade. Failed miserably. And pretty obvious in hindsight why that was the case. And I think it sheds important abstract lessons on where PLG is applicable. And, and where it's not. The, the main uh, re- result there was we didn't have a low time and effort to value use case. You need to have a low time and effort to value and ideally retainable value to be able to pull that off. And for the HubSpot marketing software, you know, the, the whole premise was like, if you blog for four months, your, your leads will go up four times. Well, blogging for four months is not like a low time and effort. I mean, it takes a while to get to that aha moment if it takes four months. <laughs> exactly. You know, Dropbox is like, yeah, click here and you back up your device in 30 seconds. Great. It's beautiful. Yep. Right. Um, so we didn't have it. The, um, the other thing that was against us, which is very relevant to your, your question, Blake, is we were trying to do it in the construct of having an existing install base, albeit only being a couple million bucks in revenue. But when you have, it's, it's hard enough to like, you and I start a company, Blake, and we're like, let's do PLG. Let's attack the marketing and software arena. Cool, we have a complete white space. And we can architect like, what's the right use case that should be free and how do things get moved up to the print? That's, that's fine, that's white space. It's still hard, really hard. But when you add to that, the complexity of, putting enough in that free product where it works, but doesn't cannibalize 
the $3 million that you have in revenue so that everyone doesn't downgrade from 300 bucks a month to like 20 bucks a month. And you have to explain it to your next investors why your revenue went down by 50%. That's next to impossible. Plus there's the fact that this customer journey, you know, takes a while to have the payoff. And so the mix just wasn't right at the first attempt for, for PLG. Yeah. Wasn't the right use case and very hard. We didn't approach it in the right way. If even if it was the case. Okay. So then Ford fast the clock to roughly 2012, 2013. Now we have 80 million in revenue. I don't know, 10,000 customers, thousand employees. I'm not sure. And we decide to go into the CRM space, the sales software space. We're exclusively a marketing software company. And we decide to stay in SMB, go into the CRM space, feel like there's a lot of white space there. Now we can do it. And that's sort of like the first abstract like lesson for people who are concerned that they're in a category that is PLG-able and they're going to be attacked. And that is you have to create a safe sandbox for a small team to go and figure out PLG. It is going to take like at least six months, probably more like 12. And that team, I don't know, at least five or six people. For Now that could be a new market. It could be like an international market or you could carve out like a territory in the US. It could be a new product, like what was the case in our sector. So yeah, that's what we did. And, and we actually followed um, Clay Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma and Michael Tushman's Ambidextrous Organization. If you want to read those frameworks, I find them to be great guides on how to do this. And one of the cliff note versions of it is you have to set it up so that the big company doesn't slow down the project. And so what Brian and Darmesh said is like, okay, Mark, we're going to team you up with Christopher O'Donnell. Um, Christopher was like a very successful product leader in our organization, went off to be chief product officer of the organization. He's like, the two of you, this is a critical project. Like we, we honestly feel like we might lose to Salesforce because they just bought like exact target. So they're clearly coming into our sector. We have to do this. So we're going to put the two of you in charge of it and you're going to like start your own company. We don't want to see you <laughs> like we'll give you the, the bottom floor of the office. Do not build this on our tech stack. Like we run the entire uh, platform of, of HubSpot marketing software on NetSuite, build it on Stripe. Like don't let anything slow it down. We don't, don't have any overlap. So truly kind of no rules, no holds barred. Like you get, you know, carte blanche, you know, startup within a startup, like go figure out what the right answer is for this problem, for this market. You have to do it that way. Yeah. Because Blake, we couldn't, we couldn't say, oh, I think this is the right answer. And then does that benefit HubSpot? Because the minute you say that you're constricting your opportunity to perhaps be a little more guided by HubSpot's context as opposed to the true market opportunity, right? And so we had to be sincere, genuine, and true to the opportunity without being distracted. And also anything to be slowed down. We couldn't get, we didn't want to have to get approval from the CFO to do something or from the, the, the CPO on that side to do something. And so totally different tech stack. They were like, here's budget for like 20 people. You can poach 10 from the current team and you have to hire 10 from the outside. Okay, so that was like the compromise of like using resources. That was it. And, and, you know, that doesn't come without negativity. As we started to scale, like people would be a customer of the marketing product and be using a CRM and they call up our support team with a question on the CRM and they'd be like, I don't know. 
I'm on the spot. I've never, I've never been trained on the CRM. Like it, it doesn't come without cost, but those are necessary costs to figuring this out. Just a quick break in today's conversation to make sure that you're getting all the latest in PLG content from OpenView. First things first, if you haven't subscribed to Build in your favorite podcast app, make sure you do that now. We drop four episodes per month and subscribing is the best way to stay in the loop. And while you're at it, drop us a rating and review for the show so that others can find it as well. And secondly, did you know that I'm a YouTuber? I put out weekly videos on the latest and greatest in PLG with my show called the PLG 123. Every video is two minutes or less and features VC perspectives from yours truly on the latest in VC, SaaS, and of course, product-led growth. So find me on YouTube by searching Blake Bartlett and make sure to subscribe to my channel so that you don't miss a single video. Okay, now let's dive back into today's conversation. You know, you want to go after sales um, and and build something that eventually will become the sales hub uh, within HubSpot. But you didn't necessarily, at least from my understanding, kind of build a better sales force, you know, on day one. Um, so what, what did you end up building and what was that kind of progression to ultimately get to, you know, full CRM platform and and I guess with this PLG lens, like what was the starting point and, and how did you make self-service work, um, you know, within the CRM space? Okay. So first off, it was like getting the right team, which a lot of people don't do well. A lot of people in, in whether you're starting from PLG from scratch or you're starting as a project like this, a lot of PLG or the growth team in charge of PLG in B2B reports to the marketing team. And that's the first mistake because to PLG and growth is all about rapid experimentation on the entire growth funnel. That's what the growth team owns is they own driving users into the funnel, getting them to activate, getting them to become DAO wows and mouse, getting them to trip the monetization wire and getting them to retain and maybe drive virality if you're doing virality. That's what they own. And the best growth teams just run rapid experiments in a data-driven environment to drive the conversion rate day after day after day. We're talking about like multiple experiments a week, not like three a month. We're talking about rapid experimentation. And if you just put that team in like marketing, you only have marketers. You don't have any engineers. Engineers don't want to work in marketing. And so when you put that team in marketing and only have marketers, you dramatically restrict the footprint of experiments you can do. And so that's the first thing is we have to make this like a product driven team. It's a lot of engineers, a lot of designers, it's engineers, designers, data scientists. That's the driver here. And we went out and um, uh, Christopher Rodano, we call him C Todd. I think you call him C Todd Blake. Um, uh, he, he was like the best growth leader I know is Brian Balfour. And I'm like, all right, I remember Balfour and he was an impressive guy. And he's a founder type. He's like, yeah, you know, like anytime like these larger companies come, like they don't like make it interesting enough to compare to me going off and doing my own thing. And I'm like, well, you know, you have a lot of fans at the company. Darmesh, me, C. Todd, David Cancel, who was our head of product at the time, and try me. And so we got it done, moved his wife over to Boston, and we, we spent three years doing it. And so that was, that was a big thing, the right team, the right mindset around the stuff. And he taught us a ton of stuff about, he taught us a lot of stuff. 
And then, of course, it was like getting back to our point here in your question, Blake, is like, well, what is the product? Because you can't start off with like a CRM. That's not low time and effort to value. Adopting a CRM is like putting a bunch of stuff in there, setting up your stages. Like we need something like ideally more like Dropbox, right? I think it was Todd and his team uh, created like the Sidekick app, which was more about just like initially just like understanding when and who is opening up your, e- your sales emails. And they brought everything through a Chrome extension into your email. So it's like the, the, and, and so that was a starting point. I was like, yeah, just download this thing and you'll know when people are opening their emails. And there was competitive apps out there then, but because we did this in a very growth oriented, rapid experimentation way, and because we had like, you know, the advantages of the HubSpot brand still, we were able to accumulate lots of users very quickly. And that allowed us to leverage that opening use case to expand the footprint of the use cases into what we all know as a broader CRM. You'd be surprised that if you like, if you get someone in this particular case, you get someone to like install a Chrome extension into their email and start tracking all their emails. Guess what? The CRM is just populating behind the scenes. You know, it's like, it was kind of like this self-built CRM. So there was all of this value to the person who was using it, uh, which was seeing when somebody opens your email and being able to call them right at that moment and stuff that sales reps care about and SDRs care about. Um, but then on the back end, it's creating exhaust and you're capturing that exhaust and that's starting to build the foundations of what in the future can become the CRM. Exactly. And that's just like, that's a very specific case of an abstract point here, which is like some well thought out packaging design about like, what is that opening use case that's low time and effort to value? Single player mode is a big advantage. If it is single player mode, meaning you can get value by yourself, like that's much easier. Um, And lots of value for the end user as opposed to the executive buyer. You know, I've looked at other folks who are like, hey, I've got this like forecasting tool and I want to do PLG. The forecasting tool is valuable for the executive, but the person that like actually has to like do it is the salesperson and they don't care that much about the forecast. Yeah. It's not solving their problem. It's solving their boss's problem. So it's like, you're, you've built the wrong product for the wrong persona. There's a mismatch there. Right. Exactly. So those, those are some of the abstract lessons we can pull away from the selection of that free use case. And then there's a whole another set of like decisions around well, what, what should the pricing tier be based on? And you know, that, that's tricky because like, I'm still kind of working on, maybe you have guidance, Blake, cause you've been thinking about this space a lot, but I, I know like if you can choose something that doesn't restrict more usage by the end user, it's kind of good. Cause it just gets more entrenched. If it doesn't restrict like the network effect of this thing to spread across the organization and maybe even other organizations, that's really good. So I like to kind of try to charge for things that like the executives really value, but doesn't restrict security or user roles or integration with the bigger tech stack. You know what I mean? These are, these are things that are like, like the end user doesn't care about as much, but like when I find out as a CIO or something that like, I can't do this stuff and I, I'm, I'm torn between turning off this app that like all my people love or just like paying up and locking it down, you know, like making it secure. Like that, I, most CIOs want to do that today. Because another pattern I've been seeing lately is like 
if you are going to try to monetize the single user uh, to drop them into the paid account as a free trial for the first 30 days and then downgrade them to the free version to try to like get them addicted. And we kind of did a little like that at Sidekick. I don't remember exactly what the rules were. Was. I think there was a limitation on how many emails you could actually track, but we gave them unlimited in the first month just to get them going and then drop them down on that tier later. So once we had that all going, all that set up and that right packaging model, two things that Belfort did and then one, as we thought about Laren and the sales team, that I do think that are abstract points that a lot of people mess up. Um, and the first part was like, what are the North Star goals? And I do find that like most PLG teams and B2B growth teams move to monetization way too quickly. And, and the better growth teams that I've looked at don't do that. And Belfort certainly didn't say that. So usually it progresses from step one, just get enough users to just experiment with. I don't know what the right number is, maybe like a hundred a week. And that's where like paid marketing is really useful because you can just like force a certain number of users in. And at this point, we don't really care about like CAC. We don't care how much these users cost. Um, just like, let's get some experiments. And then once you have that, okay, fine, we figured out how to get a hundred users in a week, great. The next one is free user retention that we usually talk like mile, wow, down. Monthly active user, weekly active user, daily active user. What we did, and I think what Belfort professes to is you just need to track your wows in like weekly cohorts and just make sure that it levels off at some point. Like it doesn't go to zero. Cause if it just goes to zero, if you acquire a hundred users and then eight weeks later, they all go to zero. You just, there's nothing there. It has to level off and whether it lands, obviously the higher, the better, but if it levels off at 10% or 30% or 60%, we, we, we got something. And that's like the second North star metric. Right. And then the third was, Okay, cool. Now I, I'm proven that I can throw 100 users in this every week and I'll retain 30% of them. And now I've got this beautiful thing growing. Now prove to me that you can acquire those free users economically. How can we acquire those users? And that's where like now we start thinking about content marketing and virality. And I'll tell you that we walked into one month having acquired users through paid uh, acquisition and it was $100 per free user. And the team ran 27 experiments that month on that metric. And after the month, it was $14. That was just sick, right? Just like all the learning that came from that. Okay. So that was third. The third one is like, holy cow. Now, now I can put a hundred users into this thing for free users at a price that I know I can make a business at and they retain. Now it's time for monetization. <laughs> so now it's like, okay, can we, can we get the uh, ACV to work such that the overall payback and LTV CAC to work, but all too often people are like, oh cool, we have a hundred users coming in. Now let's figure out the pricing tier. And the final one was like how we integrated the sales team, which was kind of a little more on my, um, uh, my area. Because a lot of people like, you know, you've got this cool PLG motion and then you start adding salespeople and those salespeople have like a $700,000 quota. And all of a sudden they start missing months and they're behind and guess what they do? They ruin the PLG motion because they end up calling those free users before the magic has happened and they do what salespeople do. They give a demo, they tailor the pitch, they lie, they don't set expectations right. And now your churn goes up and now you're a sales led company, not a product led company. Your, your CAC goes up, everything's ruined. And so we had to do two things there. The first one, we started with a very small team 
And I didn't put them on quotas. I had like three reps and I was like, it's more about learning than it is quotas. And we had each of them do a recording every day. And we invited the whole team to listen to the recording of the discovery call to learn what's happening. So this is more about learning. And then once we moved through the funnel, we had it going and it was time for like accelerate B2B monetization that only they could do. Then I comp them by paying them more for the expansion revenue than the first revenue, which is very unusual. You know, most comp plans are, you just get paid more for the first foot in the door. And then the expansion is the easy part. But when you do that, you put the sales rep behavior and motivation contradictory to the buyer's ideal adoption process, right? Like the, the buyer's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm loving this thing. I'll definitely upgrade to the CRM and I'll try it for this team of five people. And the salesperson's like, no, no, you have to roll it out to all 500 right away. And they don't say this, but it's because I, that's how I get paid. But if you, if you say like you get paid 20% more for the expansion revenue, now they're alive. Right. And I had my rep being like, oh, sweet. I got a 500 seat account on the line and I'm going to sign up three accounts this quarter and then get the other 497 next quarter. I was like, sweet. Yeah. Because you're going to set beautiful expectations for those three accounts because that's not when you get paid. Yep. You get paid when the three accounts work really well and then they upgrade. So beautiful magic happens when you kind of rethink that rollout. Yeah. It's a beautiful way to sort of get it all to, to connect. And the other like tweak you can use instead or also that a lot of people don't do is you can have some of the compensation be based on the aha moment, right? So let's take this, the, the, the sidekick, the HubSpot CRM that we're talking about here. Um, clearly when someone, when a user installed the Chrome extension and started tracking emails, that was like a very sticky moment. And so if you were running something like this, obviously we had people doing that humanlessly, but if you were running like a sales team who were getting involved there, you can pay them half when the customer signs the contract and half when they set it up and use it, whatever your aha moment is. And I've done that with lots and lots of companies. And what, what ends up happening is the salesperson gets the aha moment set up during the sales process as opposed to waiting until the purchase happens. And that just tees up your CSM team. It sets really good expectations. It really lowers churn. Like it just a lot of beautiful, beautiful things happen. So taking a step all the way back, there's some things, you know, here that you sort of outlined in terms of the process, again, for a company that might want to, to look to do this. And I think those process pieces are incredibly important and valuable things like, you know, creating a sandbox. Um, you gave a couple examples as to how you could create that sandbox. We're going to launch a new product. We're going to go into a new geo, something like that. Um, and then once the sandbox is created, it's like give them freedom. Uh, the goal is not synergies on day one. The goal is, you know, figure out the right answer for this market. Uh, give the operating leeway, you know, all those kinds of things. But then once you've done those things from an infrastructure standpoint, you got the right team in place. Um, the, the principles that are coming through to me is, you know, start small and be patient. You know, the starting small piece is you didn't try to build, you know, a full featured uh, CRM replacement right out of the gates. You, you said, what's the thing that can add value to an individual user? Uh, and you started there and it's, let, let's get them hooked. Uh, let's get them loving it. Let's get them telling their, their colleagues and friends and peers about this thing. 
uh, and let's get you know retention and value and aha moment and activation out of sort of something that might just be more of like a feature. It's not even a product yet. <laughs> it just does one thing. Uh, but then we can use that as you know the starting point to then build more, but we started small. Uh, we didn't bite off more than we could chew. Um, and, and then on the be patient piece, I mean, there's so many elements of, of being patient that you pointed to. Uh, whether it's uh, not focusing on CAC on day one because you know beautiful SaaS metrics isn't the goal, product market fit and building the right thing that can take off is the goal. Um, you know, being patient on when do you monetize and and how early do you expect to see sort of revenue results? Uh, when do you put sales in there? All of those things. Again, it's um, don't get too excited too early and sort of uh, you know screw up all the progress you just made. Uh, because, you know, it's sort of delicate, right? You know, it's the wheels are still wobbling a little bit. And so you need to give it the patience, give it the time uh, to mature. And then once it is working, um, then you can kind of, you know, once you've nailed it, then you can scale it sort of thing. That's a great summary. That's a great summary. And I, yeah, I think that last part is, is a key point that we didn't really talk about. Like a lot of these practices, right? Putting the team product oriented, the way we measure, the way we read experiments, how you overlay that that's that's applicable whether you're trying to move to this or you're building it from scratch but if we just talk about how do you move to this that that sandbox carving out that sandbox separating out that team setting up that team in the right way and then that your point Blake is like once it works you disrupt yourself before someone else does and that comes in a lot of different flavors for us it was easy because it was a different product. So we just kind of brought them together and we had to train the sales team, the core sales team on selling both and the support team and that there was a process there. Um, for other folks, I know like they like when, when salespeople in certain territories quit, they don't replace them. They just let the PLG take over the territory, right? So like it depends on your business context, but you essentially have to find a way to disrupt yourself. And that's why I kind of like you might have to cannibalize your revenue a little bit. And so for growth startups, I typically like them to do that disruption process when they're capitalized, because it, you might have a quarter or two of like some wonky numbers. And so whether that's just like, obviously it's a very transparent conversation with your investor, but it's just like maybe a new investor coming in and be like, listen, this is what we're gonna do. And it might create some like weird revenue for like a quarter or two, but this is the business that comes out or your existing investors, right? It just needs to be, like, you, you might have some wonky a quarter or two, and that, that, it takes some guts, but it's better than taking your medicine in a year when you lose market share from someone else. This is the definition of leadership, right? It's not easy, you've gotta get through it. So having done it with a couple of folks, get ready for this. Like, your VP of sales is gonna to come to you being like, you are killing me. So on this point of leadership, um, there's, there's a lot of founders listening right now. There's a lot of leaders listening right now who are in this exact position. I want to go to PLG. I have the full conviction, but we have a going concern. We have a company that's been around for 10 years. Um, it's going to be a process. I want to do it. Um, this story is incredibly helpful. These frameworks are incredibly helpful, but it's going to be a journey of a thousand miles and I need to take the first step. So what does that first step look like and, and how long should they take or how long should they expect for that first step to start showing some results? Yeah, I love it when I'm like, it's actually just in the last six months, I'm seeing this issue come up 30 out of 30 times. So it's starting to be like, and, and when, they, when they listen and fix it, it's like, oh my gosh, it's like, it helps a lot. 
So here's what happens is I'll, I'll, I'll kind of talk about this and be like, all right, is your category PLGable? And we'll decide, oh my gosh, it is. It's PLGable. And we're already seeing some, some attackers get funded. And we're at 30 million now, and they're only at like half a million, but we're really worried and we have to do something. And they're like, okay, we're going to do it. And I'm like, okay, cool. Carve out the, this, carve out the sandbox, build the team. They got it. And then they're like, okay, we're going to um, start the first experiment in three months. And I'm like, wait, wait, dude. <laughs> what do you mean? Three months? What are you doing? He's like, oh, well, we have to build this whole self-service onboarding process. And I'm like, no, no, you're going to get it wrong. Here's what you're going to do. Fine. Build some sort of MVP or like use the existing product to like hack it and just put up a landing page that says what your product does. Try now, direct some paid traffic to it, and then do the the person behind the count, uh, the curtain, Wizard of Oz technique, have someone call them right away and just be like, oh, cool. Thanks for signing up to our product. Let me show you how to, let me get you set up and go to work. Don't spend three months building the free user flow. Like just hack it and have a, have the engineers or PM like sit with the person that's taking those calls and watch like where people get hung up. Like give the user the control to get things set up and tell them what to do. And, and just now you start building up dozens and dozens of users next week, right? So use the, the, the Wizard of Oz, like person behind the curtain initially. Don't wait 90 days to build your free user flow and build it wrong. No, this is great. So, so yeah, start small, be patient, but also orient towards action and don't overcomplicate things. Like if you need to do the person behind the curtain strategy in order to get some initial signal, if you need to use paid marketing to juice signups just to see if there's any value here at all, you know, all the things we've talked about sort of, um, you know, embody these three things. Start small, be patient, but also orient towards action and like get things done and get them done week in, week out. It's all about, you know, whether it's experimentation, it's about volume, whether it's about, you know, product features that you're shipping, it's about volume and it's about speed. And so- this is a perfect summary of both the story um, that I point to so often. Uh, and guess what? I'm going to point a lot of people to this podcast because this question is going to keep coming. I'm like, you know, go check out this uh, long version of it, you know, with Mark, who was there on the front lines. Um, and, and so I think the story is going to continue to sort of go out there and is going to have a lot of value. But especially when it's combined with these sort of principles of how do you do it operationally? And then, you know, keeping in mind that you need to start small, be patient, orient towards action. Uh, and then once you disrupt yourself, it's going to be disruptive. Lean into it. Uh, I think this is perfect. Um, it's going to be valuable to so many people. So thank you, Mark, so much for joining us here in the Build Podcast and walking us through your thoughts here. Yeah, it was so great to get so deep. 